Welcome back to PH Pod for the fourth episode of season three. I'm Bethany Hollenborg. And I'm Connor McCombs. Thank you so much for joining us today. So this season, we're focusing in on public health at work. And today we're speaking with Professor Kevin Outerson of the BU School of Law. So today we're diving into the world of antimicrobial resistance. We want to jump right into our first question for you, um, Professor Addison. So yes, you're a lawyer and a professor of law, specifically health law and patent law, right? Intellectual property. Any sort of intellectual property that would protect the right to a drug. Can you talk about what the work is that you do and maybe help us see how it does relate to public health? Yeah, I, I'm not sure why it's a surprise that a lawyer does things in public health. Um, but I've had this question before. So my earliest work was thinking about problems with access. Um, so we have intellectual property. At that point, you know, the AIDS crisis was still in its earliest years of having any sort of therapeutic alternatives, any sort of drugs that worked. And these drugs were being rolled out only to high-income countries in the first instance, whereas we were finding out that the majority of the cases were not in high-income countries. But it raised the question of, Aren't there ways to incentivize innovation so we get new drugs, but also simultaneously make them available to people who can't really afford to pay much for them anyway? That was the beginning of my academic work, probably the, the first several years of my academic work before I became uh, increasingly obsessed with, uh, with antibiotics and spent really most of the past two decades there. And how did that kind of develop? You start with HIV research and drugs around HIV and then it develops into antibiotics and now antibiotic resistance. What what kind of sparked that change? So let me ask you this. Rank these diseases and the number of people who died from them in 2019. So COVID is oh not goodness, there. We're getting a quiz. Okay. okay. I love it. All right. <laughs> so HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, and drug-resistant bacteria. Ooh, do you want to go first in your rankings? Well, I th- maybe I'm being a little unfair to you. <laughs> I, I, I would say... I feel like it's a challenge, but we got it. I was going to put TB first, then antibiotic-resistant bacteria, then HIV, then malaria. I think you probably know too much. You must have read the, the Graham study to prep for this interview, because I, I don't think most people would answer in that order. That's... Did I get it right? Well, you know, it's it's less. It's not fully precise yet. Ooh, okay, okay. Your turn hold on. Then. then I'm going to go. All right. I agree with TB first, but I'd put malaria second, and then I'd put antibiotic-resistance, and then I'd put HIV. That would be mine. Am I further off? Uh, you're a little further from the pen. Dang so. it. <laughs> I pride myself on my knowledge. So the, um, you know, it's, it's clear as a bell now that antibiotic resistance kills more people each year than either malaria or HIV. You look at a lot of uh, the way that law and economics interacts and how they theorize about intellectual property. And one of the assumptions built into those models is that once the drug reaches the moment of generic entry, you know, once the patent and all the other intellectual property expires, there's a there's a payoff to the public that suddenly that drug becomes generic and can be available without paying a royalty and, and lots of people can produce it and the price goes down and access is rewarded. And my question, which I dropped in a footnote, but what would happen if there was a drug class for which when it reached generic entry, it was less valuable? specifically because it had declined in effectiveness during the patent period because of resistance. And I just left that as a question. I, I didn't resolve it in any way. You know, I didn't go anywhere with it. But it, but it, it raised enough question with me because I realized, okay, I just wrote a 92-page article, but 
for probably the most important drug class in human history, you know, anti-infectives or JL1 antibiotics, uh, something that's had a tremendously positive impact on human health, maybe the theoretical models actually don't work, or, or at least there's serious questions about them. And so that led me into beginning to ask questions about antibiotics, and, and uh, like I said, I've been increasingly focused on that for the past almost two decades now. A short sentence sometimes is the most powerful part of a paper that we've written. And just that idea that that's how this came to you, this thing that you've now devoted so much of your academic career to, being a footnote in one of your tenured papers is just really cool to me. And, to go and it's a pretty tangent. boring footnote, too. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's, not that, it's not that illuminating. So could you explain then how, with this time frame, a bit about how antibiotic resistance will build up if you have, if you are paying more royalties on a drug that for 20 years, how do you then get to the point of that antibiotic resistance and where's that happening? Well, it's a natural biological, ecological process resistance and with exposure comes more resistance. So whether the exposure is natural, if it's a natural product through fungi in the soil, or whether it's through industrial production or, or animal or agricultural or human use, all of the above drive resistance. You know, resistance can be caused by somebody who took an antibiotic that saved their life. It could be caused by somebody who absolutely didn't need the antibiotic, took it for a clinically misdiagnosed or misinformed reasons, and it, and it could even damage their microbiome. They could be worse off resistance is caused in each of these circumstances. So my concern wasn't so much, I didn't think the patent law was, or intellectual property law was in any way accelerating the, the resistance feature. The companies actually have been uh, fairly careful in the, in the last few decades. They were not careful at all in the 40s and 50s, but then again, neither was were the medical establishment. The thing that drove my interest though, on your specific question, was the response of the medical establishment to misuse of antibiotics is a concept called stewardship. You know, antibiotic stewardship. Let's be careful with these precious things and use them only where appropriately. Don't overuse them, don't misuse them. Right dose, right patient, right time, etc. It'll reduce resistance. It'll also reduce unintended negative consequences of people taking an antibiotic when they don't need it. All the dysbiosis and the microbiome disruption. That's a great thing. The CDC says right now, after years of effort, that they still think that something like 40 to 50% of all um, community antibiotic use in the US, not hospital, but community, is uh, unnecessary. So that's another way of saying that if they are effective in stewardship, the volumes would decline by 50%, which for an innovator, for a new company, you just told them the market fell off the cliff unless they can somehow compensate for the lower volumes by higher prices. And that leads into another discussion. If suddenly you made antibiotics like cancer drugs, $100,000 each or something like that, then you would be giving companies an incentive to overutilize, to oversell, to overmarket these drugs. And at $100,000, there's no one in South Africa or no low-income person around the world who could afford that truck. So you have to maintain this tension between the demands of access. Let's make sure that was my original concern. Let's make sure people around the world who can't afford these drugs get them. Innovation, let's make sure we continue to innovate because resistance chips away everything we have today. Uh, as well as stewardship, let's take care of these things. 
And it's really hard to simultaneously solve for all three of those issues. Especially because it sounds like they kind of work against each other a little bit. They do. They do, in fact. So you're finding a balance within three things that the best way for them to happen is by kind of dropping off the other ones. So if you don't worry about price of the drugs, then you can have a lot of innovation, but then nobody can actually get the drugs, and then it's this whole cycle down. Right. The most prominent solution now is called a subscription model, which tries to fundamentally change the way that we pay for antibiotics. Let's stop paying by the pill, stop paying by volume. Let's pay instead by what society gets for the drug. A leading country of the world, the United Kingdom, has actually piloted this and introduced this a a couple of years ago. Uh, The first two drugs were selected and announced. It, It actually went live on July 1st of this year. Other countries, other members of the G7 are looking at it as well. It was explicitly called out in the G7 health minister statement this year. Yes, the G7 being an organization of seven high-income countries coming together to discuss and combat social and financial problems. And we expect uh, you know, many countries to look at this very seriously. In the U.S., there's a, a proposed bill, which has been gaining co-sponsors, called the Pasteur Act, which does exactly this. It's paying for antibiotics like we pay for Netflix. You know, if you watch all of the shows and, and neglect your studies and your friends. <laughs> never. Uh, never. <laughs> Or if you don't watch anything that month because you're too busy, you pay the same, right? And so the advantage of a subscription model is that you pay the company enough to sustain innovation. They have no incentive to oversell because they get paid the same no matter what. The drug is available then at the lowest imaginable price. It's free then to be distributed uh, to whoever needs it. So it, it solves those, that three-pronged problem of access, innovation, and stewardship by just thinking of a completely different way for paying uh, for a, a drug. And in the US, the Pasteur Act is, is uh, still alive and kicking and gaining co-sponsors. Uh, getting important things done in DC is, I don't know if you've noticed, it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just difficult? Okay. Yeah. Some, yeah, but not impossible because some things happen, right? And uh, At their slow and leisure pace. At, at, at whatever pace Congress requires, right? That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. So I, this progress being made on the Pasteur Act, it's, it's an important step because it would fulfill the U.S.'s G7 commitment to also implement an antibiotic subscription plan and would, would encourage the other remaining members of the G7 to do the same. It's also interesting that these are being enacted in high-income countries like the U.K., like the U.S., and the G7 overall. Is that where we're seeing a majority of antibiotic resistance, or are we seeing it in other communities? I know that's a little bit beyond necessarily yeah. the legal stuff, but no. The um, there's a, a comprehensive report uh, study was published in January this year in the Lancet. It's called the Graham paper. It's a uh, it's it's the the most comprehensive and, and methodologically complex and, and excellent work to calculate how many people are dying from drug resistant bacterial infections. Before this. You know, antimicrobial resistance or drug-resistant infections were not included as a as a cause of death in the global burden of disease study. Um, it was always something else. You know, you didn't die of, of drug-resistant infection. You, you were dying of the cancer, but actually... It, it was a result of drug-resistant infection. Yes, right. And, and I know a mom whose daughter has cystic fibrosis, but uh, her daughter died of a, of a lung infection. There's another well-known CF patient um, who went to... 
college, uh, unfortunately, at Boston College, but uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll forgive Gunnar for that choice. But Gunnar Esaisen, who's the son of the football quarterback, Boomer Esaisen. And uh, he also has cystic fibrosis. And th- these people were supposed to die in the early 20s. And the, the new drugs that came out of Boston, out of Vertex, have saved the lives of these CF patients. But now what's threatening them is, are the infection. And so Gunnar has said, he said to me publicly and on his podcast, that he's on his last antibiotic. Okay? How scary. Not, like how That's... scary a reality when we're told there's always drugs, especially for what feels like infections feel so compatible. Um, you know, you get the cold, you get colds and flus and, you know, strep throat your whole life. There, there's been a couple decades in which, as a society, we've underinvested in antibiotic innovation. And this goes back to your question about high-income countries. Most of the research and development is paid for by high-income countries. But part of the global effort is if the whole world is more careful with these drugs, stewardship, um, if the whole world works hard to ensure that the poorest have access to these drugs, you know, access, um, can we also make sure that we have the new drugs that we need to, to feed into that system? And so while these uh, subscription models are coming first out of the G7, the other pieces of the pie or, or the other pieces of this puzzle are being observed and worked on. So you were talking about the global burden of disease um, and reporting on deaths for antimicrobial resistance. That number is one and a quarter million people in just 2019. So is that more than what we've seen before? I know you said it's the first time they've been including it, but do we yeah. know if that's just bigger? It's significantly larger than we knew from, from reliable sources. There was always the sense that this was a huge problem in the developing world. We had good data in the US. The CDC says 35,000. Uh, it's roughly the same number for the European Union. And, but we have good surveillance in Europe and the U.S., or, or better surveillance certainly than the rest of the world. This study you know, looked at everything and found uh, you know, evidence of, of remarkably higher burdens of, of this disease in the rest of the world, which is not an unexpected result. One and a quarter million deaths is still pretty bad. <laughs> I would yeah. say it's still yeah. bad. Well, I mean, think about the U.S. number. So the CDC number of 33,000 was released... Uh, during the the last year of the Trump administration, and um, and that number, thirty three thousand, you know, is a very significant number in the United States, and that's in the United States with with a highly uh, modern healthcare system and a, and a pretty effective infection prevention control system. So imagine uh, what that looks like in you know some other country with much less resources, and but there's lots of people in the world who aren't eating and drinking water and food that came through that system, they have a greater need for these drugs because they're not being protected by that filter, that prevention. Prevention is the first line of defense, as public health people love to say, usually the most cost-effective line of defense. Yes. Yeah, clean water and clean food is, is better than treating people who are sick any day anyway. So you are involved in several innovations and programs designed specifically around tackling antimicrobial resistance. Right. So how do social sciences, law, and medicine all tie together in this fight against antimicrobial resistance? Just trying to build the base of people from different disciplines who talk to each other about this issue, because I'm convinced it's going to, it's an all of university or all of, all of these sciences and 
and humanities sort of approach. And, and so my, my premise of the CIDR program was to put out a request to the campus and say, if you get two or more professors who are from different disciplines or different schools and departments together and jointly propose a project, then we'll evaluate it and decide whether or not to give you a postdoc. And that postdoc will work for you for two years to implement that joint idea. Folks need a reason to, to get out of their comfort circle and to work with somebody else who's outside of their normal you know, realm of collaborators. With comfort zones, for sure. And yeah. we like to stick to them sometimes. Especially yeah. when we can't see the connection between what we work on and what they work on. And, and the, and the payoff and the incentive structure in academia, you know, is that you need a, a high impact publication within your field, not somebody else's field. So you, know, you need people who are already fairly secure in their career, who are willing to take a risk and to think outside you know, their disciplinary box. I call this uh, the CIDR program, S-I-D-R, and it was, uh, it was funded by um, you know, the, the interest and initiative of, of the president of the University, Bob Brown, after I re- received the CARVEX grant, uh, which is another giant piece of what I do. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. For those unfamiliar, CARB-X is a global nonprofit partnership here at BU working to combat antibiotic resistance. Could you please tell our listeners a little about what you're working on now and where CARB-X is headed? So people may not appreciate that one of the largest grants in the history of the university is is CARB-X and it resides at the law school. Congratulations. Thank you. And I think our, our total committed grant amount at this point is over $800 million which is a lot of money. Typical law professor has no grants or maybe a a small grant to to write a paper or something. This was an audacious grant and the university, instead of laughing, embraced it and and maybe to their surprise, we we won it and and off we go. What we do is that out of the basement of the law school, we run a global not-for-profit research institute. It's a virtual institute that is responsible for the bulk of preclinical antimicrobial innovation around the world uh, for the past six years. And so we've assembled a world-class team of pharma expert drug developers as the R&D team at Carbex, along with grants management teams and, and uh, project management and communication functions at Carbex. And so with, uh, I think, 25 people. So, you know, we're, we're kind of quiet over there. There's a little sign, and then you go down a dark alley and, and down some steps, and, and there we are in the basement. That spot is the, you know, global headquarters of the nonprofit entity that supports antibiotic innovation all around the planet. First of all, wow. That's Just, incredible. <laughs> yeah, I've seen this sign. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a little five foot sign. Just tiny yeah. little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Walked uh, right by it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what I was missing. Especially yep. with recognition from WHO um, about the preclinical pipeline and the work that y'all have done in that. Well, and, and also, you know, so Germany th- has the presidency of the G7 this year. And in the health minister's declaration uh, from the G7, there was a call for their, by Germany saying that all the members of the G7 should consider supporting uh, CARBEX, CARB-P, and SECURE, you know, three entities that work in this space. We work in the preclinical space. Uh, CARB-P, uh, most of their effort focuses on phase three and, and post-approval work in low- and middle-income countries. And SECURE is a WHO project, which is, is still in the pre-pilot phase, which is trying to design better ways to ensure access to antibiotics 
in low-income countries. And uh, they called the three of us out by name. Uh, three of our funders are members of the G7, so it wasn't like a total surprise. But that's you know the strongest validation you can get. That's amazing, and congratulations on Thank being you. recognized like that. So this is what the big organizations working in antimicrobial resistance are doing. What can I or we as the average people do? Well, are you talking about an individual response or, or a social response? Sure, both. You know, we're we're in a both. public health we're environment. Public health. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do both. There's multiple layers of the... Yeah, so, you know, individual... So ecological model. <laughs> individually, you know, don't push your doctor to give you an antibiotic if, if they're not... You know, don't be the one pushing for that. Let, let the clinician decide. Uh, you know, treat them as, as, as valuable and dangerous and dispose of them properly. Flushing them down the toilet is a bad idea because it releases them into the environment. Think about what you eat. You know, some of the food chain uh, has strong implications from antibiotics. Chick-fil-A quietly uh, went antibiotic-free in, in its chicken. I wish they would advertise it. Yeah, why quietly? They're just, I don't know. But uh, I'm grateful that they did it. But uh, but you would think it'd be you know front and center in some of their ads. But they focus most of their ads on nice people eat chicken. Right? <laughs> so antimicrobes, they don't really fit into this. I, yeah, I just think it's outside of their purview on that. So you can think about you know, your food chain and how you implement that. But uh, I think most importantly, the, the U.S., this Pastor Act legislation would really be transformational in, in my view. I've, I've worked towards this idea of now for 15 years, and, and I, I see it as the way to solve for all three of those problems simultaneously. And for the U.S. to lead the world and, and to, for us to have a sustainable access to these drugs and sustainable supply of them. Um, and Congress has got a lot of other things that it's always more important. You know, this is never country to run. <laughs> yeah, but but what's the most boring job on the on the Golden Gate Bridge, or or, or the Williams Tunnel in Boston? Is it a drawbridge? Does it go up? <laughs> no, 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 but the, the, there's somebody, you know, for the tunnels under Boston Harbor, who's in charge of maintenance schedules. I mean, didn't that just sound like? Kill me now, right? I mean, we're seeing that with the T right now. We have mm, okay. It's oh, a negative let's not, example. Let's yeah. not dive into the MDTA. Yeah. Some of us are still upset. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Like, think, wait, wait. Think I thought we had an orange line, and, 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 <laughs> we're, and, we're, and what happened to the green line to, to Somerville? Anyway, this shows the importance of somebody being careful with maintenance schedule over decades, because maintenance is boring. Maintenance is expensive, and you can get away with not doing it for five or ten years. But after a certain period of time, maintenance is gonna it's gonna bite you and it's gonna ruin things. It's gonna close tunnels, it's gonna close lines. Infrastructure requires maintenance or else it fails catastrophically. We need to think of antibiotics as infrastructure for civilization. We have clear data that we have underinvested in this since the nineteen eighties at least. And we're seeing the fruits of that right now with one point two seven million deaths and not very much exciting in the near term clinical pipeline. And so I think we're in the orange line. Catching on fire phase. Yes. We have an actual we, MBTA metaphor for what's going we on. We do indeed. You know, all antimicrobials really. Okay, so it's the only drug class in history. I've said in some settings that I think this is a test for human civilization. Can we pass this test? But with AMR, the, the solution is so much more direct, so much cheaper, and there's hardly anyone who thinks it's a bad idea. It's just a question of getting attention. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's it's it could be a win. If we can't get this one done, then I worry about our ability to to get harder, more expensive, more intractable problems like climate done. So that's a really depressing that's way to. I mean, it's a doubt. So, it's okay. Well, we'll pick it up. We'll pick it up right it's okay. now. We're in a dark room without windows. Right? <laughs> a dark, a dark place. room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here at PH Pod, we try and use short sentences when possible. We try to say a lot by saying a little. So, Professor Outerson, given everything we've talked about today around antimicrobial resistance, all the factors that are leading into it, all the work being done to try and prevent it. What is your short sentence? Antibiotics, we should pay for value, not volume. PH Pod is brought to you by Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation in health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the health of the population. Join the conversation by following us on your favorite social media. You can also subscribe to the PHP Friday Roundup and see our stories of the week delivered directly to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org. Thanks for listening.